Good morning. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so by saying amen this morning. Amen. Half of you. Great. Um, I'm just kidding. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to put a comma after last week's sermon and continue talking about evangelism and fellowship. How we do evangelism as a community of faith and what that looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at several texts this morning. I don't like doing that normally, but just the topical nature of this subject. We want to look at what the Bible has to say as a whole about evangelism and uh, fellowship. Uh, But one of the key passages we're going to look at this morning that should give you great hope is 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm pretty good at, at preaching with distractions, but that, was, that one was going to be tough. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that would be Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning... is that my message would not be with wise and persuasive words, 
but that it would be with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith will not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of Almighty God. Help me to accomplish that one task this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we focused more on the theology of evangelism and what the Bible has to say about why should we do evangelism as a church. And this morning we want to look at more of a practical way of how we should do evangelism and what are some characteristics of a church, a biblical church that is doing evangelism, not just individually, but as a community of faith. And so this morning I have six things I want to talk about with the church. Uh, some of them will, will take a little bit longer. Some of them won't take long at all. Um, if you want to follow along, uh, this, this, the notes are on my website um, online and joshpilgrim.com. I don't mind if you use your phones to follow along. Got a lot to say. Um, but let's get started. What does the church have to say about evangelism? Remember that evangelism is not just a special gift for some Christians, it is a divine command and commission for all Christians. There are some people who are specially gifted with the gift of evangelism, and yet there, are, there is a clear calling from Scripture in the Great Commission of Jesus that every believer in Christ is called to make disciples and to preach the gospel. And so as we look at these passages and we look at what the Bible has to say, let's keep those things in mind. How does the church do evangelism? And what should characterize the church? The first thing that I think is crucial to us as a church being faithful to the gospel is, uh, is that the entire church, and when I say the church this morning, what I mean by that is all believers. All believers, the entire church should be competent in proclaiming the gospel. If you look back at 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 1, Paul says, We have this ministry, this ministry of reconciliation, this ministry as an ambassador, this ministry of preaching the gospel. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. None of us came to God on our own terms. All of us are here by God's grace. So we're here by His mercy. And in verse 2, Paul says that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. And we refuse to, to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. Instead of trying to use wise and persuasive words or to use smoke and lights uh, or just to have pizza parties and and clever methods of trying to get people to believe our message. Paul says we have thrown those things away and we preach the gospel under the power of God. And we trust the Spirit's power. We don't trust in our own cunning. We don't trust in our seminary degrees. We don't trust in our experience. We trust in the power of God. And yet Paul seems to be saying to this church and to us that everyone should be competent, should be able to teach the gospel. Now, obviously, some people are specially gifted and they're able to articulate the good news in a, in a way in which people seem to believe it. But everyone needs to be able to articulate the gospel. And so, let me remind us of our definition of evangelism. What is evangelism? Evangelism. 
to evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And that as the reigning Lord, he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, Paul says the same thing about being competent. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Evangelism is a gift for some, but it is a calling for all of us. Ephesians 4 makes this clear that to some, God gave the gift of evangelism, but... Our churches, we as a church, and and I think all of the men who serve in leadership here would, would agree that we need to make sure that everyone in the church not only knows the good news, but is able to express it clearly. Could you do that? What is the good news? And so what I want to do just very quickly right here at the front is to give you not necessarily a method, but what I think is the important... Uh, the most important approach to evangelism. Because let's be honest, evangelism is both a process and an event in most people's lives. I would be willing to bet that most of you did not come to Christ the first time you ever heard the gospel. Maybe you did, but for most people it took a process. It took a long time of you hearing the message from a lot of different people. And then finally one day you had that event in your life when you realized, I'm lost. I need Christ. And you confessed him as Lord. You repented of sin. You believed in your heart and trusted in Christ and you were saved. But that event was preceded by a long process. So I understand that a lot of times our our conversations with people are going to take many different forms. But I want to give you one big way of looking at evangelism and how we do it. And just to give you an example. And this is not something that I came up with. Uh, if, are any of you familiar with Way of the Master? You may have seen it uh, on TV at times. Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, these guys have uh, used Jesus' method of doing evangelism. And this is how it works. Our proclamation of the gospel needs to include both law and gospel. You say, why do we need to include the law in the gospel? You've probably heard Mitch say this a hundred times. You've got to tell people the bad news before they're going to appreciate the good news. And the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Ten Commandments, was never to show you how good you could be. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show you how wicked you are. So that you stop looking at yourself and entrusting yourself to be a good person to be saved, but to look away from yourself and to look to Christ. But until a person realizes that they're sick, they're never going to go to a doctor. It doesn't make sense for you to come to to people and just start talking about Jesus and how they need Jesus. That makes no sense to them because they see no need for Jesus. Do you want to know the characteristics of most people in Rome, Georgia? The problem in Rome, Georgia is not that people are gospel hardened. They're not hardened to the gospel. The problem with the majority of people in Rome, Georgia this morning is that they are gospel ignorant. They don't know the gospel. They've grown up in a church-saturated culture, but they cannot articulate the gospel. In, in my job at Shorter, I, I'm always asking students, Christian students, to come into my office, and I'll sit down with them, and we're just talking, and I'll ask them, what is the gospel? 
And they'll talk for 15 minutes and not be able to say one thing accurately about the gospel. They know something about Jesus and somehow he died on the cross, but that makes no connection to their life. And so if you just start talking about Jesus dying and you don't explain why he had to die, you're going to confuse people. It's the difference between going to someone with a parachute and saying, I'm going to give you this parachute to improve your flight. And they put that parachute on and it's big and it's heavy and it's uncomfortable. And they get on this airplane and people are laughing at them and making fun of them. And the flight attendant spills coffee on them. And all of a sudden they say, forget this. I don't need the parachute. This isn't improving my flight. This is making my flight worse. People make fun of me. It's heavy. It's uncomfortable. And now I'm suffering and it's painful. Forget the parachute. Because they took the parachute to improve their flight. And if you only tell people that Jesus is going to improve their life and make everything good and they're going to get good parking spaces at Walmart and they'll have their best life now, now and every day's a Friday, then it's not going to make sense. Because when life happens and when, you, when people start to suffer and their grandparent dies or their mom gets cancer or they get sick, all of a sudden, I don't need Jesus anymore. He's not improving my life. If you present Jesus as a parachute to improve someone's life, it's not going to work. You have to present the parachute to save them from a plane crash. And instead of presenting Jesus as an improvement upon their life, present Jesus as the only way that they can save themselves from the wrath of God. And that's where we use law and gospel. Because the majority of people in Rome, if you ask them this one question, are you a good person? Do you know what 99.9% of the people in Rome, Georgia are going to say to that question? Yes. Everybody thinks they're a good person. Why? Because they're comparing themselves to Hitler. That's why. They're looking at Osama bin Laden and saying, I haven't bombed any buildings lately. Uh, I haven't shot any t kids up in kindergarten up in Connecticut. I haven't done anything like that. I'm a good person. And what you want them to do is to compare their standard of goodness, not with themselves and not with Osama bin Laden or Hitler, but to compare themselves with the holiness of God. And that's what the Ten Commandments are for. And so we must explain to them the justice of God. I'm going to give you a real simple illustration of, of a conversation. I'm going to talk to myself for a moment, okay? Josh the evangelist, uh, Joshua the lost person, okay? Having some spiritual conversation with this guy. Hey, man, listen, I, I was, how you doing? What's going on? Hey, I, you know, I, I saw that you're wearing a, a shirt that has a cross. You got a necklace with a cross on it. Do, do, you, or do you have religious beliefs? Well, yeah, I do, actually. You know, I, this, just, this cross really means a lot to me, you know. And, oh, that, well, that's great. Um, are, so do you believe in God? Well, well, yeah, I believe in God. So, so you believe in an afterlife. You believe in, in heaven and in a hell. Well, well, yeah, yeah, sure. I believe in those things. Heaven, hell, of course I do. Well, do you think you're going there? This is going to get tiring. Well, well, yeah, of course I'm going there. Well, how are you going to get there? How do you know that you're going to get there? Well, I'm a good person. I live a good life. I'm, I, 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 I try to obey my parents. I'm a pretty good person. Haven't done anything too bad. So I'm a good person. Oh, so you, you, you think you're a good person. Well, well, yes, I do. Well, would you mind if I asked you some questions just to see if that's true? Sure. I already think I'm good, right? Of course. Ask me whatever you want. I'm a good person. Yeah, sure. Have you ever told a lie before? How many lies do you think you've told in your life? 
Probably thousands, I guess. What do you call somebody who tells lies? A liar. Okay. Have you ever stolen anything? No, I've never stolen anything in my life. Now, you just told me you're a liar. Okay, well. Yeah, I probably, I probably stole something small. I, well, I don't really know. Have you ever taken uh, music off the Internet, downloaded music, and didn't pay for it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've done that. What do you call somebody who steals things? A thief. Right. Here's another one. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Well, yeah, lots of times. What's well, called blasphemy. It's a very serious offense. You take God's name, the God who created you and gave you life, and you throw his name in the mud. Let me ask you one more. Jesus said that if, if, you, if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with him in his heart. Have you ever looked at a, at a woman with lust before? No, man, I don't do that. I'm not like that. I, I, I respect women, man. Well, are you gay? No, I'm not gay either. What are you talking about? Well, man, come on, be honest. Let's, have you ever looked at a woman with desire, with, with, with sexual desire? Well, yeah, I guess I have. So, Joshua, by your own admission, you told me this. I didn't, I didn't force you to say this. You admitted to this. By your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart. And that's just four of the Ten Commandments. If God were to judge you based on the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, would you be guilty or innocent? I guess I'd be guilty. Would you go to heaven or hell? I guess I'd go to hell. What is, how can anybody be saved? Nobody can, can be good enough for the Ten Commandments. Joshua, you see the problem, right? That you're guilty and that you're exactly right. No one's good enough. No one's good enough. Everyone's broken the commandments. And so you're in big trouble on Judgment Day. But do you know what God did for you? Out of his love for you? Well, I, he died, I think. Jesus died on the cross, right? No connection. No connection between cross and my need for Jesus. And what I've done is I've used the law to talk to this person. And all I'm doing is trying to show them that they're not good and that they're guilty. And if they try to say this, and people will say this when you try to use this conversation. Well, God's loving. God's a forgiving God. And I, God, God's going to forgive me, right? What do you say to that? You take them to the courtroom and say, listen. If you committed a crime, if you, if you robbed a bank and then murdered two people on your way out and you got caught and the judge looked at you and you said, Judge, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'll, I'll never do it again. I'll give my money away and I'll, I'll be a good person. I'll never do that again. I'm so sorry. The judge, if he's a good judge, is not going to let you go. And God is a good judge. He cannot forgive you of sin. He can't just drop the charges because you're guilty and the law demands that you are punished. And it's at that point when the person realizes their guilt. They have to understand guilt. That's what the Ten Commandments are for. And when they see that they're guilty before God and that their goodness will not be good enough, then they're prepared to hear the gospel. To tell them, here's what God did for you. Because he loves you. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die. Do you know why he died? It wasn't just to set a good example. It wasn't just to be a picture of sacrifice. Jesus came to satisfy the payment for your sin. He paid your debt. And God has satisfied his justice. And God is willing to look at the death of Jesus and count it in your place. And if you'll put your trust in Jesus, stop trusting in yourself. 
Don't trust in your own goodness like you were earlier. Put your trust in Jesus. And if you'll do that, if you'll repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, God will dismiss your case. He'll drop the charges and he won't count your sin against you. You'll be forgiven and you'll have eternal life. Now, when do you think you might do that? Do you think that's important to do? And now what have I done? I've explained the gospel. And instead of presenting a parachute to say this will improve your flight, I have begged them, giving them a parachute saying this plane is going down. The, pl- the airplane of your morality is going to crash. And this is the only hope you have of being saved. Would you please put this on? Put on, put on Jesus like you would put on a parachute. You don't, just, you don't just say I believe in the parachute. You put it on and you trust in it. Put on Christ. Now that's a real simple way. And, and, and the truth is, there are a lot of ways that that conversation can go with the person. And that may require us to do an evangelism class, maybe in the fall or something, just to, just to talk more about what that means. But what I really want us to see is that you have to use law, Ten Commandments. If they think they're good, ask them how they're doing with the Ten Commandments. And when you show them that they're really not that good, show them what God has done to be able to dismiss their case and to forgive them And to give them eternal life. You need to be competent in sharing the gospel. And that's a simple thing to do. And if you want to know more about that. uh, In the notes I've given resources. There are a lot of good resources that we can use to be more competent. Books we can read. I brought one of them here. I've got a, a list of them. This is The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. This is a great book. Really helpful. Um, The Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Read books by people who did it really well. And by the way. I should have said this at the beginning. What I'm telling you about evangelism, I struggle to do myself. I don't do it as well as I should. And I want to do it better. So we need to be encouraged by people who are doing it well. Mark Dever's book, Charles Spurgeon, The Way of the Master. It's a book that Ray Comfort wrote. You can also go to his website, livingwaters.com or the way or wayofthemaster.com, www.wayofthemaster.com. And you can go online and watch these guys use this approach. Do it. They do it in the street. They just talk to people. And it will encourage you. Um, there's another book, One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven by Mark Cahill. Used to play basketball with Charles Barkley at the University of Auburn. Guy's just a passionate evangelist. Got a great book on simple things to share your faith. Um, the other thing is use YouTube. This is something you can do this afternoon. Go to YouTube and type in... Three different names of people, Todd Friel, F-R-I-E-L, Ray Comfort, or Kirk Cameron, and then type street witnessing. And just watch them share the gospel to people using what I just told you, the Ten Commandments and then the gospel. And it will, it will not only encourage you, but it will embolden you. It will give you courage to say, I can do that. So we need to be competent. And the way we share the gospel is we show people with the law, you're not a good person and you need Christ. You need to be forgiven. And that makes the cross make sense. Okay? So the church needs to be competent. Secondly, the church must not be complacent by withholding the gospel from others. I mentioned to you Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort has a quote here that was very convicting for me. He said, If you are not concerned about your neighbor's salvation, then I am concerned about yours. If you are not concerned about your neighbor's salvation, then I am concerned about yours. One of the great evidences that you're born again is that you are going to be concerned for those people that you know who are lost. 
It's going to be on your mind. It's going to be on your heart. You're going to sit in restaurants and not be able to think about your food because you're going to wonder, is my waitress saved? Is that guy sitting over there in the corner, does he know Christ? Those, those things hopefully are at least come in your mind occasionally as, you're, as a believer. You're going to have a concern for lost people. This is what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 14. He says, I am under obligation. I am in debt both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I want to preach the gospel to them. Now, what did Paul mean when he said, I am indebted to them? I'm under obligation to those people. Here's the thing we need to realize about being a Christian. You are not in debt to God this morning because Jesus paid the fine for your sin. You're not in debt to God for a very good reason. You can never repay him. We're not in debt to God. But because of the grace we have in the gospel, we are in debt to those who have never heard it. Which is why Paul says, I am in debt. I am under obligation to preach to the Greeks and to the barbarians, the people who've never heard the gospel. What do we owe them if we're in debt to them? We owe them the gospel of grace. Just as God has been gracious to you and to me in allowing us to hear the gospel, we must be passionate in trying to take the gospel to others who have not heard. And we cannot be complacent. It was John Calvin who said that if we withhold grace from others, it shows that we have never known grace ourselves. If we withhold grace, we show that we have never known grace. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, in this next chapter that we're looking at, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't be complacent in your Christianity and don't be comfortable. And oftentimes it's good to have a reminder in evangelism in a sermon like this to remind us, don't be complacent with the gospel. Don't be comfortable and don't just say, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm good now. But you, we should always be looking at others who don't know Christ. And one of the evidences that you're saved is that you'll have a passion to see lost people come to know Jesus. So let's not be complacent with holding the gospel from others. Thirdly, and this kind of goes with the second point. The church, instead of being complacent, we should be compassionate towards those who have never heard the gospel. Christians ought to be the most compassionate people on the face of the planet. As we look at those who are still dead in their sin. 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this world has blinded the eyes of sinners. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel. And we should pity them. And be compassionate. And not be surprised when those people revile us. And rebuke us. And cuss us out. And hate us. And rip us up on Facebook. Don't be surprised. They're dead in their sin. We should be compassionate. And one of the ways I think that we can be compassionate, there's a couple of things I think. First, I think a church, as the church, we need to be gripped with the reality of hell. That's weird to say. And I think people my age and younger, college student age, I think our culture 
is a little uncomfortable talking about hell. Some of you may be uncomfortable now just hearing about it. And I think part of it may be a response to the the previous generation where that's all that was preached from the pulpit, right? People say, I don't want to hear those hellfire and brimstone sermons. It's all about hell. And every sermon, every Sunday was about how you need to come down, walk down the aisle and get saved so you don't go to hell. I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't think the purpose of the church is to preach to the lost every Sunday. The primary purpose of this gathering is for believers to equip the church. And yet we want Christ, uh, non-Christians to come. We invite non-believers. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we're glad you're here. I want you to, maybe you'll hear something that'll show you that you need Christ. But we need to be gripped with the reality of hell and the eternal nature of it. You want to be compassionate for lost people? Take 10 minutes, just 10 minutes, and try to think about what hell's going to be like. Not just how hot it's going to be, but how long it's going to be. And it scares us because five minutes trying to think about eternity blows our mind and we don't even want to think about it. I think one of the problems and one of the reasons that not many Christians share their faith is because we have stopped talking about the reality of hell and the wrath of God that will be poured out on unbelievers. So let's not ignore the reality of hell. Let's not ignore the fact that people are dying. Millions every day are dying all over this world who have never heard the gospel, have no access to the gospel. They've never even heard the name of Jesus. Over two billion people all over the world who have never heard the name of Jesus and have no access to the scriptures in their language. And they're perishing millions upon millions every day going into hell. And we don't say that laughing. We don't say it because it's funny. It breaks our hearts. It should. But hell is not the only motivation for us to share the gospel. It's not just that people are missing out on eternal life in the future, but they're also missing out on abundant life now. They're chasing after frivolous things, wasted things, sinful things, looking for pleasure in all of the wrong places. We want people to have abundant life in Christ. Spurgeon said this about meditating on the reality of hell. He told his his church, to meditate on the condition of unbelievers. He said, meditate with deep solemnity upon the fate of the lost sinner. And like Abraham, when you get up early to go to the place where you commune with God, cast an eye towards Sodom and see the smoke thereof going up like the smoke of a furnace. Shun all views of of future punishment, which would make it appear less terrible, and you will take the edge off of your anxiety to save immortals from the quenchless flame. If we stop thinking about the reality of the wrath of God in hell, it will diminish our passion and compassion for those who are lost. One of my favorite stories is in this book. And I don't have time to read the whole thing, but it's a story about John Harper, a man so compassionate. He, he was born in 1872, uh, was converted and started his own church in 1896, started doing evangelism in, in England. He lost his wife to death, but he had a beautiful little girl named Nana. This guy almost almost died several times as he grew up, Just was miraculously saved from drowning a couple of times, but... 
I'm skipping ahead here. I want to read the story, just part of it. While pastoring his church in London, Harper continued his fervent and faithful evangelism. He would share the gospel on the streets Monday through Saturday and invite people to church on Sunday. And he was such a zealous evangelist that the moody church in Chicago asked him to come to America for a series of meetings. And he did, and they went well. And a few years later, they asked him to come back to that church to preach again. And so Harper boarded, boarded a ship one day uh, with a second-class ticket at Southampton, England, for a voyage to America. His wife had died just a few years before, and he had with his only child, Nana, was with him, six years old. Nana died in 1986 at the age of 80, and she remembered being woken up by her father on this ship a few nights into their journey. It was about midnight, and he said that the ship they were on had struck an iceberg. Harper told Nana that another ship was just about there to rescue them. But just as a precaution, he was going to put her in a lifeboat with an older cousin who had come with them. As for Harper, he would wait until another ship arrived. The rest of the story is a tragedy well known. Little Nana and her cousin were saved on a lifeboat. But the ship they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know what happened to John Harper... After is because in a prayer meeting in in Hamilton, Ontario, some months later, I'm going to try to read this, keep my composure. A young Scotsman stood up in tears and told the extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic the night it struck the iceberg. He had clung to a piece of floating debris in the freezing waters. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near. John Harper. He too. He too was holding a piece of wreckage. And he called out, man, are you saved? No, I'm not, he replied. He shouted back. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the waves carried him away. But a little later he was washed back again. Are you saved now? He called out. No, I answered. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then losing his hold on the wood... Harper sank. And there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. I want that. I want that passion. With my last dying breath. To share the gospel with people. Counting my life nothing. I had to repent this week. For the fact that I could not remember the last time. That I have wept over the fact that I have friends lost. It was Leonard Ravenhill that said the reason you don't have converts is because you don't have tears in your prayers. 
We must not be complacent, church. We must be compassionate for those who are lost. Okay, moving on. Fourth, let me move quickly. The church should demonstrate the nature of the gospel by their conduct. I said last week that we don't just preach the gospel with our actions. We preach it with words, but our lives should give credibility to our words. Philippians 1 says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit as a body, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Our lives give credibility to our words, and our lives are the confirming echo of our witness. It really matters how you live, because people won't believe what you say if you deny the gospel by your life. This is why John says in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. And the world will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And I'll say this again. Lifestyle evangelism is incomplete and ineffective apart from the vocalized proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. But we must seek to remove any sinful habits that may become stumbling blocks for others coming to Christ. Live your life in a manner that lifts up the gospel and is not a stumbling block for others. Unnecessary stumbling blocks. Don't seek to be offensive by yourself. The gospel is offensive enough by itself. The fifth thing. I have six. Here's the fifth one. This is going to get really practical. The church should promote a culture of evangelism within the community of faith. A community or a culture of evangelism. What does that mean? Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher in the early 20th century, said, Evangelism is preeminently dependent upon the quality of the Christian life which is known and enjoyed in the church. So I'm going to give you several things I came up with about how we can cultivate a culture of evangelism within our own body. The first and the primary way is through preaching. Through preaching. And I'm so thankful for Mitch and other men who stand up here and preach the gospel week in and week out, seeing that Jesus is the main message of every, mess, of every sermon. Every text points to Christ. Every text echoes the gospel. We preach the gospel in our preaching from the pulpit, and the pulpit is the rudder that drives the ship of the church. And so I'm thankful for a gospel-preaching church And so in our preaching, we should distinguish between Christians and non-Christians. We are not all on equal ground this morning. There's two people here. Those who are forgiven in Christ and those who are still in their sin under the wrath of God. Here's what we want. I don't want us to think that the main thing we're doing on Sunday morning is to try to bring people to Christ. The purpose of this Sunday morning message is not primarily for someone who might be a non-Christian this morning to believe. I hope that happens. And I prayed that that would happen. But the primary task of my, of my message this morning is to equip every one of you to go into your context, your school, your job, and to reach people that I'll never be able to reach. It will be far more effective for me to equip you to preach to hundreds more than to try to invite people to come and listen to me. They know you better. And so our preaching helps to create this culture of evangelism. Another way is through our worship. 
I'm so thankful uh, for Adam and Chris and our worship team who, who week in and week out, we email them, we tell them, here's what we're preaching. And they pray and they prepare and they think, we want to we sing songs that, that support the message and are gospel-centered songs. That's why most of what we sing is about the cross and the blood of Christ and the good news of Jesus. We also don't seek to artificially hype this moment with emotion. We want it to be mainly filled with truth. And so when you sing this morning passionately, it's not because you like the beat of the tune of the music, but it's because the truth of the gospel has so gripped your heart that you have to sing. You can't just stand there. You have to worship. And it's not out of artificial emotion, but it's out of a true passion for truth. So... We, we worship in gospel-centered music and lyrics through preaching, through worship. Another one is through our conversations. We want to create a culture of evangelism with our conversations. Listen to this passage. We've already said, uh, Emmett quoted from the Psalms about, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Here's another passage from the Psalms that talks about gospel conversation in the midst of the body. Psalm 145, verses 10 through 12. Psalm 145, verses 10 through 12. It says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. All your saints shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Do you speak about those things in your conversations? Do you speak of the glory of the kingdom and the power of God? Charles Spurgeon once told his congregation that he doubted whether the lost people of London would be able to become converted to Christ simply by eavesdropping on the conversations of the members of his church. And I would ask the same question. If people were to simply eavesdrop and listen in on your conversations, would they know how to become a Christian? That's how John Bunyan was converted. That's how Charles or John Wesley was converted. They were in the streets and they overheard the conversations of laymen, not preachers, but just regular everyday people who had other jobs. And they overheard their conversations and they were converted to Christ. Spurgeon preached a sermon on the text that I just read for you. It's a great sermon to go back and listen to. You can find it on Spurgeon.org. It's a, it's a sermon entitled Christian Conversation. This man preached 150 years ago, but I think that what he says here characterizes a lot of cultural Christianity today. Listen to what he says. He says, it is much to be regretted that true children of the Lord often talk too little of him. What is the conversation of half of the Christians of the present day? Honesty compels us to say that in many cases, it is a math, mass of froth and falsehood. And in many more cases, it is altogether objectionable. If their conversations are not light and frivolous, it is utterly apart from the gospel and does not minister grace unto the hearers. Now, this is prophetic. He says, I consider that one of the great lacks of the church nowadays is not so much Christian preaching but Christian talking. Not so much Christian prayer in the prayer meeting as Christian conversation in the parlor. How little do we hear concerning Christ? 
You might go in and out of the houses of half of the professors of religion and you would never hear of their master at all. You might talk with them from the first of January to the last of December. And if they happened to mention their master's name, it would be perhaps merely as a compliment to him or possibly by accident. Beloved, such things ought not be. What are we talking about, church? Are your conversations seasoned with the gospel or is the majority of what you say characterized by football, weather, Facebook, music, TV shows, And it's not bad to talk about those things. But what are we talking about? And this is for me too. I have to think, my conversations, what do I spend the majority of my time talking about? Because Jesus is clear. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And one of the greatest ways to become a bold witness for Christ is to fall so in love with Jesus that he consumes the passion of your heart and what's in your heart will overflow from your mouth. So how do we do this in conversation? Talk to other Christians about the gospel. Encourage them. Do what I do. Ask them to explain the gospel to you. To practice. Hey, ask a believer. Hey, what's the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? Ask non-Christians what they think the gospel is. You'll get great responses from them. And you'll find out just how gospel ignorant our culture is. And then you'll be able to correct their misunderstanding. Hey, what do you, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? What do you think that was for? And they'll tell you. They'll most likely be wrong or incomplete. And then you can explain to them why he came. One of the ways we do it, we encourage people to stay after the service. We put up chairs. And I love how people stay after church just talking, having conversations. When you go to lunch today, talk about evangelism. Sometimes I think we get nervous about talking about evangelism because it's weird. We feel like used car salesmen. But it doesn't have to be that way. Just talk about evangelism with with, with Christians. Use your conversations wisely. Another way that we reach people. Create this culture of evangelism through prayer. As a church, we should always be praying for the salvation of our lost friends. This is what Paul did in Romans 10. In Romans 8 and 9, Romans 9 and 11, he says I'm, he's heartbroken that the Jewish people are not believing in Christ. In Romans 10 verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. Are you praying consistently for the salvation of your lost friends? Prayer is the means by which God chooses to answer. So pray. Pray for those people who don't know Christ. And don't only pray for lost people, pray for workers to go into the harvest. Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful. There are plenty of people out there wanting to believe the gospel, willing, and they will believe it if they hear it. But the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up workers for the field. You know the truth? The truth is, if you're a believer this morning, you're an answer to prayer. Because we've been praying that the Lord of the harvest would raise up workers And here you are. You're an answer to prayer. Pray that God would raise up more preachers, more missionaries, more faithful Christians to speak the gospel in their own context. Another way we create a culture, new membership classes, baptism classes. We we teach the gospel as we we have new members. We we teach it that way. We, We cultivate a serious approach to church membership that cultivates a culture of evangelism. And the more you understand the basics of the faith, the more you're going to feel comfortable sharing the gospel. We teach the gospel in special classes. Another way, briefly, connect groups. Invite your people to connect groups. Invite your friends to come to your homes. 
They may not want to come to this building. They may go to your house and eat supper with you. Through church planning. I'm sure Mitch has said this before. Statistically, the most effective means of evangelism in the United States is through church planting. And so let's pray that God may even give us the opportunity as a church to take some people from our body and to plant another church to reach more people for Christ. There's other means of evangelism. Uh, there's tracks, gospel tracks. And if you don't like the ones that you can find on the Internet or order, write your own. Ben Hansard, one of our members here. Ben's not even here, so it's probably good. Kim's here. Hey, Kim. He, ben came up to me last week and he said, he said, I get so frustrated reading some of these gospel tracks that don't even explain the gospel or it waters it down or oversimplifies. He said, I got so fed up with it, I wrote my own. And it's great. He laminated it and... You can do this, or if you don't want to write your own, get it from him. This is great. Starts off talking about how the gospel's a treasure, it's a pearl. Gives you the bad news. What's the problem? We're sinners. What's the answer? Jesus, right, explains the gospel. On the back, how should we respond? Repent, believe the gospel. Then he goes, what's the cost of discipleship? A new life. And now what? Scripture reading, involvement in church. This is a complete thing. And he even, you know what he did? I love this. At the very bottom, he says, may God richly bless you as you embrace the abundant life. Please call me, Ben W. Hansard. Here's my, and he gives his phone number. Email me if I can assist you in your journey in any way. Boom, right? That's, there's, there it is. That's a, that's a member of this church who says, I want to do something more than what I'm doing. And this might be a way that I can leave this in a bathroom, leave it on the table at a restaurant, just hand it out to people. Somebody might read it and somebody might give him, give him a call. So many seeds, gospel seeds, and you will reap a harvest eventually. Other means, invite people to church events like the Passover Seder. Had a guy invite several men to that and they heard the gospel. Read evangelistic books with non-believers. I could give you a hundred more ideas of how to reach people in this culture, in our church culture of reaching lost people. Right? The last thing. Need to hurry. And this, is, this may be one of the most important. The church should be confident in the power of the gospel. Let me say this very quickly. As a church, we must understand three main things about the nature of salvation. The first is that people, mankind, people are dead in their sin and morally incapable of seeking God or saving themselves. The first thing you've got to understand in, in, in the nature of salvation is human depravity. People are dead in their sin. And they can't save themselves. The second thing, God is sovereign in salvation. Only he can bring about the regeneration and the new birth in a person's heart. So, human depravity, God's power to save. The third thing, the church is responsible for gospel proclamation. We are the means by which God has chosen to make his gospel known. That's our responsibility to preach. Three things in salvation. Human depravity. People are dead in their sin. God's power to save. Only he can do it. Third, our responsibility to preach. God uses us. And here's, here's where we see this in 2 Corinthians 4. I told you we'd come back to this text eventually. All right, Here we are. I want you to look at verses 4, 5, and 6. And you're going to see a cosmic sandwich. In verse 4, you're going to see what the devil's doing. In verse 6, you're going to see what God is doing. 
And verse 5, in the middle of this cosmic battle for souls, you're going to see what God has us doing. Okay? Verse 4, what is Satan doing? In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Human depravity. People can't see the gospel. That's what Satan does. Skip down to verse 6 and let's see what God is doing. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. People are dead, blinded by the devil. They don't even know it. They're so dead in their sin. And yet God in his power sends light into their hearts. The same power that said, let there be light in the beginning. And light came out of God's mouth at 186,000 miles a second. And he gave light to the world. He's, that same power speaks light into the darkness of people's hearts. And they believe. Human depravity. People are blinded by, by Satan. God is powerful to save. He is shining the light in their hearts. And where do we come in? The responsibility to preach in the midst of Satan blinding eyes and God shining light. In verse 5, Paul says, we preach Christ. We preach Jesus as Lord. That's our gospel message. And in the midst of our preaching, there is something supernatural going on where God is shining light into the dark hearts of blinded people. And that's good news for us. Let me give you just a few verses from Scripture to show the sovereignty of God and salvation. And it ought to take all the pressure off you to realize it is not up to you to use your persuasive words to convince people that they're lost. God's going to save them, but we must preach. We must share. Let me give you just a few. God's power to save. Jonah 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet he goes and preaches to Nineveh. A seven-word sermon. Don't you wish I'd done that this morning, right? Seven words. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And revival comes. If God can do that in seven words, I promise He can use you, right? Another one. Acts, or Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We know this one. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard that the gospel was for them and not just the Jews, it says when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Those who had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Acts 16, verse 14. One of those who heard the message was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Instead of using Revelation 3.20 out of context to present Jesus as a beggar knocking on the door of somebody's heart trying to get in, let's present Jesus biblically from Acts 16 and show that he's the sovereign Lord not trying to knock on the door of people's hearts to get in. If he wants to get in, he'll kick the door down. The God who looks at the gates of heaven and says, Open up ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. If he can open the gates of heaven, he can surely enter into the heart of a sinner. And so let's trust the power of God that it's the Lord who opens people's hearts to save. And yet we preach. Here's another one. Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. 
for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. We could say the same thing about Rome, Georgia. There are many in this city who belong to God, and they will be awakened by the gospel because Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice, and they will come to me. He guarantees the results if we will be faithful to preach. And let me give you one more. It's verse 7 in this passage we just read, and it's often overlooked. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What is this treasure that we have? The gospel. And God has entrusted the glorious, valuable message of the gospel and he's put it in clay pots. Your value doesn't come from the substance that you're made of. Your value comes from the message that you behold. And the reason God gave this message of the gospel to clay pots is to show that it's not your power that saves, it's his. Last week I I finished with a story about my dad, the pastor of Georgia Power, and Harry Hammock, his deacon. Roger Mabry, uh, my deacon here at, at Three Rivers, works at Georgia Power. Uh, he, Dad, he said he wanted to be your deacon too, so you got two now. I want to tell you another story of something that if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation and, and Him working, let me, let me encourage you with this. A couple of years ago, my dad and my mom and uh, I think my, my sister went on a trip on a mission trip to Baltimore, Maryland. And they were doing block parties and they were doing some evangelistic stuff out there. And my dad was standing there out in, in downtown right in the middle of this city and he, and he felt like he wasn't being used. He felt like, man, I, I can't get up there on the stage. I can't play an instrument. I can't, I can't get up there. I'm not going to get up there and preach. What can, I, you know, I can't, not a whole lot I can do around here. Kind of felt like he was... Nothing to do. And so he said, well, I'll just, I'll go serve hamburgers. They're giving away free hamburgers. He said, I'll I'll serve tables. So he goes over and he starts to serve hamburgers. And and this guy walks up or actually rides up on a bicycle. He's a college student named Scott Mitchell. Scott Mitchell was from Iowa. And he was spending his summer in Baltimore, Maryland to sell books as a summer job. So he came up to my dad and he said, hey, what's going on here? My dad told him, he said, we're here for a block party. We're telling people about Jesus. Uh, Would you like a hamburger and and a hot dog? Well, how much does it cost? Well, it's free. He said, yes, sure. So my dad gives him his hamburger, his hot dog. He says, hey, uh, so what what are you guys talking about? Why are you here? We're here to talk about Jesus. Would you mind if I talk to you? So my dad takes him back uh, on the other side of the building uh, next to to the buses of the church they were with. And starts to share the gospel with Scott. And just use, opens up the Bible, shows him, just starts to explain the good news to share with him. And Scott said, I, man, I need to think about this. So my dad gave Scott his phone number. A couple of days later, Scott called him and said, Mr. Pilgrim, I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm dealing with a lot. What, what should I do? And, and my dad said, just read the gospel of John. A couple of days later, Scott Mitchell called him back and said, uh, Mr. Pilgrim, I read the whole Gospel of John last night. And uh, I, I'm convinced and convicted that I'm, I'm wicked. 
I need a Savior. I'm lost. And so my dad got to share with this young man, and, and, and Scott Mitchell became a Christian, gave his life to Christ. And that's a great story in and of itself, but it gets better. One year later, my dad was at his house here in Rome, and he's here today. You can ask him if this really happened. He's at his house, out in the yard working, and these two college students drove up on their bicycles. And they came up to my dad, and my dad said, uh, what can I do for you, young men? And they said, uh, sir, we're, we're here to sell books. And my dad said, you know, that's funny. Uh, a year ago, I was in Baltimore, Maryland, and I met a college student who was selling books. His name was Scott Mitchell. And one of the, one of the boys selling books stood there and said, Scott Mitchell, I was in Baltimore, Maryland last year. And Scott Mitchell was my roommate. His life was changed that summer. Something happened to him. And my dad said, sir, what's your name? Mike Patrick. Where are you from, Mike? I'm from Indiana. And my dad said, well, first of all, let me tell you, I'm not going to buy your books. Second of all, come here, I've got to tell you something. And so my dad had him there. He said, sir, we've got to go. He said, you had time to tell me about your books. Now I have time to tell you about... Uh, about Jesus. And so my dad shares the gospel with this Mike Patrick. He shares the gospel. Now let me just, for any of you math people out there, you tell me the probability of this, that there are two boys. One lives in Indiana. Another one lives in Iowa. Both of them do uh, sell books in Baltimore, Maryland. One of whom meets my dad who randomly goes on a mission trip. One of those boys randomly runs up to my dad. My dad shares the gospel with this boy. His life is transformed by the gospel. His, he's from Iowa. His roommate from Indiana, one year later, comes all the way to Rome, Georgia, rides his bicycle up to my dad's front door and talks to my dad and he hears the gospel. You tell me the chances of those things happening. And you tell me that God is not superintending this. We are not, we, we do not battle with flesh and blood. We battle with spiritual powers. Satan is blinding the eyes of sinners and yet God is shining the light in the hearts of dead, dark people and yet we preach Christ. When you preach Christ, you never know What's going, to be, what's going to happen with your faithfulness? So be encouraged and be confident in the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the sweet news of Jesus. Father, I, I pray for our church this morning that you would make us compassionate for those who are lost. Father, I pray that we would trust not in our own power, but in the power of your spirit to convince and convict people's hearts. Lord, we hear story after story of your faithfulness in the lives of those who have trusted you to preach and to share the message. I pray that every Christian in here would see the gospel and see the, the message and see evangelism as something that they can do. Lord, I pray for anyone who may have wandered into this church this morning and, and they've realized they're not a Christian. They're under the wrath of God and they need to be saved. Father, would you, would you convict them and bring them to Christ and draw them to yourself? Help them to repent of their sin and believe. Would you shine light in their dark hearts and regenerate them and take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh?
Father, would you glorify yourself this morning in the worship of your saints as we sing together for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I welcome you. If you are not a Christian, we're going to have men and women in the back who would love to speak with you, love to pray with you. You can just walk back there and just tell them what you want to talk about. They'll be happy to, to speak with you and pray with you. For those of you who are believers, let's stand together as a corporate community of faith. As we take the gospel to the community, let's stand up and and sing about it now. The greatness of our God and salvation and the glory of the gospel. Let's worship together.